Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books in Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Stephen Jenkinson. Jenkinson has a new book. It's entitled A Generation's Worth, Spirit Work While the Crisis Reigns. And it's a rarity among books and, to my mind, authors. Jenkinson not only attempts to reckon with our current crisis in the midst of it, which would be challenging enough. But he also attempts to reckon with his previous work, asking the ballsy question, to the books that I've written in my life, does in some part my life's work stand up to the pressures of this moment? Did I write anything that withstands the test of this time? This is, to my mind, a colossal demand that Jenkinson asks of himself. He's written books about money and soul, death and wisdom, matrimony and patrimony, and the role of elders in a culture bereft of them. In A Generation's Worth, Jenkinson isn't so much summing up these previous books as leaning in more deeply to the questions that animate them. And through these questions, these wonderings, as Jenkinson calls them, he asks us to lean more deeply into life not life as we wish it or want it to be, but life as it is, life full of grief and mystery, full of rough gods and dark roads, life that, as he writes, will prevail over lives, yours included. Stephen Jenkinson, welcome to the New Books Network. Eric LeMay, I'm glad to be here. (laughs) I appreciate you. I appreciate your time and your work and you've got this this new book, A Generation's Worth, Spirit Work While the Crisis Reigns. And I imagine over the course of our discussion, we'll, we'll wander into different pockets of that title. But I was wondering, by way of introduction, if you could talk a little bit about spirit work. I think that might be something that, that maybe a listener would say, hmm, you know, I, I, I've got a good sense of what the crisis is right now. Yeah. Um, but spirit work, and I know I'm the beneficiary of yours, uh, so I I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what that work is that you do. Sometimes you describe yourself as a spiritual activist. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, um, you could hear it as me saying, working on your spirit while the crisis reigns. That's not what I meant, though. Or you could hear me saying, Employ your spirit as a laborer while the crisis reigns. That's what I meant. So 
I'm talking about a, a kind of work that employs the spirit rather than um, rather than targets it. And this is probably puts me as a bit of an outlier in the self improvement brigade. I would think. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And the notion came to me when I was actually pondering at some considerable length the difference between that might be between prejudice and wisdom. I mean, I think anybody who's alive in this time and, and fortunately or otherwise hooked into the news feed has had to wonder a time or two, is there any difference between them anymore? Should, has there ever been? Should there be? And if so, um, how can you tell? So, I mean, prejudice does not have a good PR firm working for it, but let's, let's give it its due for a minute. And uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to give you a feel for what I came up with. So is it, is it possible to inherit wisdom? I wondered. I mean, I just came off writing a book about elderhood. You'd think that my answer would be a slam dunk, absolutely, gotta be, and all the rest. But I was far from persuaded that such a thing is possible. And the more I thought about the nature of wisdom and the nature of inheritance, it occurred to me that it's actually all but impossible to inherit the wisdom of your predecessors, which uh, certainly puts a, a wrinkle into the notion of ongoing, continuous tradition. And, you know, what is, what is meant by the word culture, really? So I came at it this way. It, typical for me, I started on my off foot. So I wondered about wisdom by regarding prejudice first and asked myself, is it possible to inherit prejudice? And the first kid, the, the amen came back at me fiercely and severely. It, not only is it possible, that's the only way you can really come by your prejudices. How so? Well, there's something about the nature of prejudice that it's, um, it's a one size fits all proposition. It's like, it's like a spandex attitude problem or, or worse. And the prejudice, the nature of prejudice is that all you really have to do is wake up in the morning and you have your, your prejudice pockets filled to the brim. I know this is a grim bordering on cynical take on things, but just, you know, just ride it out with me just for a second. What I'm saying is it's in the nature of prejudice that pre your prejudices don't need any work right? They are, they are user-friendly right out of the gate. They're instantly employable, instantly translatable, and especially instantly generalizable. In other words, prejudice is globalization without the marketplace. So um, this is a wonderful thing in a, in a macabre sort of way. It gives us a take on sort of the panopticon of, of uh, contemporary times when, when the notion that it's a world market and it's a world community and, you know, this infernal machine that you and I are going back and forth on now is all we ever really needed in order to be able to, quote, get along. In actual fact, it has the consequence of making ongoing war on anything that's specific and local and outlying and noncompliant. So, there, so none of those things describe prejudice. Prejudice is actually Main Street once you inhabit it. It's a Main Street proposition, and it really, really works. But you don't have to work on it. All the work 
for in, uh, for adopting a new prejudice has been done for you, right? Mm-hmm. So how is this somehow unlike wisdom? Well, you inherit your your prejudices from the ongoingness of the culture, basically. And uh, like as I said, you don't have to look far. When it comes to wisdom, it is the, it seems to me it's in the nature of wisdom by definition to be specific and local and particular and indigenous in the old order sense of that term. And because of all those things, it doesn't work to uh, willy-nilly pluck or cherry-pick from the wisdom of the past and imagine you can just mainline it here in the present. These things are basically unrecognizable because uh, wisdom lives in the particulars of its time. So what I'm saying is it seems to me wisdom is, among other things, utterly faithful to the time that it's born in, utterly responsive to the troubles that it finds, utterly responsible to its practitioners. So because of that, you can't generalize from it. So you can't inherit the particulars, or if you will, the content of wisdom, what you can and what you must inherit from your predecessors is the example of wisdom's work, the fact that the, that the culture undertook, the one that preceded you, I should say, the generations that preceded you, they undertook the troubles of their times, not as problems to solve nearly as much as um, the place to employ the very best of them. That's what you inherit from them, the discernment, uh, the willingness to apply yourself to the situation, uh, the distinct li- likelihood that you will fail, that you're in over your head. These, these are all attributes of wisdom, you see. Yeah. So the amazing thing that, that occurred to me then was you must inherit the w- wisdom example of your predecessors, but pursue the content of the wisdom as it applies to your own time. In that sense, it's somehow a marvelous and bordering on perfect combination of what it means to be under the influence of what preceded you and still entirely a citizen, deeply responsive to your times. So here's the dilemma that arises from this. People would often ask me when I talked about this in my school, yikes, what would it look like if a given generation did not take up its wisdom work or its spirit work? And my answer was always the same. You're asking me this question as if it's hypothetical. This is a question of observation, not imagination. This has already happened. It's happened in spades over I don't know how many generations, certainly in the modern era. So what takes place then is the undone spirit work of a given generation remains undone when the generation expires, when it ages and then finally expires. And the consequence of that is the generation to follow not only inherits the, the, the example of truancy, the truancy of the spirit of the time before them, but they also inherit the lumbering kind of dinosaurish um, undone work that, of the generation that preceded them. Now they not only have their own work to do in their own time, but they're contending with the Senate's serial consequence of the work not being done before them. And so 
their present is mauled, if you will, by the unrequited um, um, failed citizenship of their predecessors. I would say that's a that's a grim but fairly perfect articulation of the dilemmas as they present themselves during the course of this pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm imagining. I mean, you're you're already heading down the road, and I'm just getting my head around. You know, wisdom is a kind of work. It's spirit work, and it's particular to the time. And prejudice is essentially an an unwillingness or a begging off of that work and just kind of letting the culture ride over top. Well, or letting it fend for itself while you self-improve until the cows come home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I guess the, I I do want to talk about this, this acruition of, of spirit work that you're, you're defining, which is, it's chilling. And I think it gets to the, this, generational concern that you have in the book just i'm sure you got this question in your school like hold on right what about what i thought was the all this wisdom of the past you know the book books of wisdom ecclesiastes you know i'm i'm reading buddhism i'm wait that's not wisdom i mean i'm i'm curious as to how you responded to holy shit i've been reading all this stuff in the past thinking it was going to play out in the present but what i what i really need to be doing is is almost have my my antennae to the ground figuring out what the present is asking of me not what this book in the past is telling me right well if it's really a book from the past that has wisdom in it then that book is not telling you what to do now they wouldn't have the temerity it Mm. would be in the nature of their endogamous wisdom not to proliferate it across all manner of boundary and time and space and culture and language and all the rest. Think about the proliferation of, of uh, missionized or missionary monotheisms across the world. I mean, the, if, I, if I may be so bold, the jury is kind of in by now on the consequences of one culture obliging another culture to take its God, usually by some kind of coercion, or by force. Now, this is deemed to be, among other things, an exercise in the transportation of wisdom, spiritual wisdom or religious or wisdom. It never seems to work, though, largely because the, uh, the one-God religions have a built-in intolerance for the many-God religions. It's, just, it's part of the fabric of the arrangement. And the amazing thing is the reverse is not true which is to say the many God religions, from what everything I can tell, don't have a built-in um, default uh, disrepute that they lavish upon the one God religions. At their, at their best, at least, they say something like, well, here we are with our many gods, and not one of them thought that he or she was the only one. And now here come these missionaries telling us that they represent the one who's the only one. And this is the very one that we were missing. So now our pantheon is complete. What an amazing thing. I mean, I'm not saying that it was all flowers and a walk in the park subsequently because history has shown us otherwise. But the, the intolerance is not mutual. And that's wisdom at work, you see. The assumption that because your gods work for you, 
where you are and you work for your gods. There's no assumption at all that uh, it's bound to be useful on the other side of the world. It's bound to be as true there as it is here. Of course, you and I both know what the typical response for the 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 backdoor uh, missionaries would be. Well, that's all a mistake. The one true anything is true everywhere all the time. That's what makes it wise. And I would say to you, well, that, but that's not wisdom talking. That's yeah. prejudice talking, right? It it needs everything to be true the same everywhere. And the only way it can achieve that is to look at the likes of you or the likes of me or the likes of, uh, you know, uh, immigrants down your block or uh, Native Americans elsewhere in town or whatever it is and say, you see all these differences? Yeah. They're all just apparent differences. What do you mean apparent? It means they're not God-given. You see, they're kind of accidents of birth and and proximity to the sun and history, whatever it is. The real truth of the matter is in our spirit, we are all the same. We look at like each, in, in our spirit, we are like each other. Translation, the differences between us are problems we cannot overcome until we recognize that underneath the differences, we're all the same. Man, whose solution was that? My answer, that's prejudice talking again. Mm -hmm. Right? How does it get over on the other side of the world? But telling the people on the other side of the world that they've been wrong all along, and that underneath uh, their their culture, they're just like you. How? Well, they're they're as cultureless as you are. What a wonderful place to begin! And of course, this is basically what uh, missionaries have s sold as the soul. The soul. Think yeah. about it. It has no language. It has no culture. It has no predilections. It has no habits. It has no tendencies. It has no, you know, clothing, national clothing. It has no national pride. It has no nationality. It has no inflection, no accent. You get my point. Yeah. It, it's not fond of hot food. I mean, it's nothing. <laughs> what are you left with? You're, you're left with this idea that um, um, we are the world, right? <laughs> Why that song is such a wretched articulation of what I'm talking about. Yeah, so we are it's... not the world, right? The world, by definition, is localities, multiple localities. That's what the world is. It's not one true anything mistaken for a lot of local things. It's, wisdom tells us clearly that all wisdoms are particular. And a wise person from an intact culture, is able to recognize the wisdom in another culture and not be threatened by it and not try to undo it. Prejudice, on the other hand, by definition says, the only way another culture can be as wise as my culture is the way in which it resembles my culture. Yeah, and that's how you you ultimately get to the residential boarding schools. and Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Turn, them, turn them into white kids. Mm -hmm. Never wondering for a second, how's the normal school system working in turning out white kids? I mean, how's it working out? And you're trying to make more white kids out of these brown and red kids? But nobody ever asked the question, why? Because the default assumption was that, and these are not my terms and I don't favor them, quote unquote, white culture is, is not only the prevailing culture of the time, but the benchmark by which we understand what constitutes culture. And the sad thing, the sad truth of the matter is 
There's no white language, man. There's no white homeland. There's no white um, uh, cultural affiliation. There's, there's no white material culture that you can point to. You can't find the beginning of the damn thing. Why? Because it's not a thing. Because it's not a race. It's, it's, it's a race by default and by comparison, right? It's a, it's an, it's a race, if you will, uh, not my term, but if we need to use it, it's a race whose principal articulation is what it's missing, what it no longer has access to, what it can't live alongside of, what it can't tolerate, what it can't live without, how it mauls the countryside pretending to be the countryside's best friend known as fracking and on and on and on. Right, right. It's something like a contemporary version of the way that you were describing how the soul functioned in monotheism. Precisely. I, I want to get to to this this idea that the generations are inheriting the the work of their predecessors, the undone work. But before right. we do that, I'd just like to circle back once more to to this idea of spirit work. You know, I know that you're someone who who believes deeply in the language and in etymology, and I couldn't help making the connection between spirit and breath, mm-hmm. um, and thinking of the the pulmonary struggles that you have. And you right. know, one of the things that I've been thinking about over the the pandemic is how you're doing with the respiratory virus taking place. And I'm just curious about your reflections of spirit is breath and, and work is breath and, you know, the, the particular kind of challenge that you're up against this moment, which is not different. You know, I know you, the pandemic is not a new take on death, but I think that there, you know, you have these, these stirring passages of, of feeling stalked in the book. Um, and, and so dread. dread. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's certainly true that um, I'm not alone in this, obviously. First of all, I'm of the demographic that the plague tends to favor. Uh, I just turned 67. But I also have these predisposing things that disqualify me utterly for getting uh, health insurance, for example. So there's a punishment, you know, worked into the fabric of the thing. But obviously, I got to be careful uh, in a way that might not be common. Because if I comes in harm's way of this plague, um, this will be the last time you and I talk. I'm, of this, I'm absolutely certain. I'm not fatalistic about it, but I am I'm realistic. I mean, I've had the flu, and the flu is bad enough. So, so there's not, I'm, you know, I'm not really debating my own personal orientation to this thing. I'm, I'm having to err on the side of um, self-preservation. <laughs> so... And I'm, I'm not unhappy to do it, but uh, apropos of the breath question, well, you know, becoming a pulmonary refugee about five, six, seven, or eight years ago, actually, it produced die-wise, literally, explicitly, uh, because I, I thought, man, this is it. I mean, I'm not coming out of this winter here. I can barely breathe unassisted. And I set myself the work of you know, writing something that would be as close as I could come to a, to a sum of what I had seen, uh, basically to save people here at Central Command the, the probable ordeal of having to answer a lot of questions upon my demise about, you know, has he got anything? Did he leave anything? You know, that sort of thing. That's where it actually came from. 
And um, yeah, it's it's uh, uh, from from the Greek point of view, um, there's a mingling between matters that w- that we're less precise about the so-called inner topography or the inner life or the terrain or the architecture. But yeah, psychology, among other things, was supposed to be the story of the living spirit of a person. Not many people subjected to contemporary psychology (laughs) seem to have found that their living spirit was addressed in the process. But, uh, and I'm, I'm not certainly a practitioner of psychology, which I understand to be monotheism without God. Mm. Yeah. So it functions very similarly to what I was talking about earlier. Uh, but it is, it is, um, handily absolved itself of the remarkable contortions around the divinity and has uh, elevated the self uh, to the, to the place that the divinity once occupied. Right. And this is why psychology, Jungian psychology in particular, so enormously compelling to the mythopoetic set among us because it, um, it keeps undisturbed the primacy of the self and the individual while tarting it up, excuse the language, it's obviously kind of prejudicial language, but tarting it up in the, in the form of a kind of sort of spiritual uh, enterprise to, um, to fawn after the self. And the reason I'm, I'm speaking so harshly about that enterprise is because I find that generally speaking, it's either or. Either you fawn after self-improvement or you answer the call of your times, no matter how improved or not you may be. And that would be the difference between spirit work, working on your spirit and exactly. undertaking and using your spirit to do the work. Right, exactly. Not, not thinking of the spirit as a, as a kind of inanimate tool or, or you know, leisure obtaining device or anything of the kind but thinking of it as a tool in the original sense of the word tool. And this is worth thinking about for a moment. At least it's worth me saying out loud and see what you think. So we have this word tool, and uh, um, these things are really handy. I can tell you around a farm, they're enormously handy, bordering on mandatory, actually. Um, You don't want to be called one, so we have an enormous prejudice against the notion that a human could be understood in terms of a tool, because we know where that goes. Slavery is just around the corner. Okay, but, but tool, in its old understanding, went something like this. A tool is an extension of the range of capabilities that the human hand has available to it, with one caveat or one limitation that ultimately the limits of the range of the uh, activities of the human hand are manifest in the tool as well. So it's exponential increase, but not limitless increase. And that's what saves a tool from being a machine. Because rather than extending the range of the human hand, the machine extends the range of the human will instead. And the human will has no apparent limits. You have this. this is why we're enormously fond of machines, but a, quite a distinct prejudice against tools because they're, quote, too limiting because we recognize our, our hensile um, limits, our, our God-give, the God-given limits of the hand, which are basically what preserves the world from us, I would say. As long as we operate 
according to the limits of our hands, the world stands a chance of surviving our, our, our successes. But as soon as we give up on the hand in favor of the will, the, the world basically doesn't have a chance. As soon as we give up on limits. Well, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah. Exactly right, yeah. Right. Including the one for, that started this whole enterprise, um, refusing to die. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier that you started Die Wise in, in what you've called elsewhere a feeling of grace time, like here I am on the other side of mm-hmm. you know, this. This is the extra time. This is the, the more time. What are you going to do with it? Right. Um, and you started a, a generation's worth. It looks like in January, as you were doing this talk series, and you you went back and you decided to see if all the books that you have written stand up to the pressures of this moment. I'm in I'm in connection with a lot of writers, and man, I'll tell you, the impulse seems to be in the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, you know, and and the way you introduce it in the book, it's kind of matter of fact. Well, maybe I should just take a look and and see if this stuff stands up. Um, but I think that that it takes a certain kind of tenacity and a certain set of stones to say, has what I done? Is it up to the measure of the time? And I'm just, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that moment where it, it occurred to you because it's you know, the whole book is, is a reckoning with that. And I think that's the gift of the book. But the, the moment in the book where you describe that is it's almost just kind of like a shrug, like, you know, I, I think I better do this right now. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think that there's, there's something there that's worth other writers, but I think all of us, you know, is, is the work that I'm doing standing up to the moment and what it's revealing we need um, that I'd love to hear more about if you're willing to talk mm-hmm. about it. Sure. Uh, very kind observations, by the way. I appreciate what you said, particularly about the stones part. I, <laughs> I think you're right about that. But um, there's also a matter of um, simply um, being responsive to doing the right thing. It's not a colossal achievement, right? It's a basic expectation we should have and cultivate about ourselves, particularly in a time of trouble. So not every, none of the books that I, I've written or, or the talks that I've done or the school that I crafted were crafted with the idea that soon enough there will be a biblical-scaled pestilence that will descend, and et cetera, et cetera. No. But did I have a sense of foreboding uh, that wasn't extinguished by uh, you know, ecological concerns? You bet I did. I I did a school that was about the unauthorized history of America. Why? Because the inextinguished fantasy called America uh, is is an immense problem that will not be solved. And I was born in the midst of the damn thing. And um, there's there's an immense amount of challenges across the board. So you must ask yourself, it seems to me, not so much, why was I born? I mean, by all means, pursue it, you know, as a kind of entry-level entertainment or uh, engagement, a device of engagement, for, by all means. 
but at a certain point come to realize, please, that the reasons for your particular birth um, are not satisfied simply by the inquiry, that uh, having awoken to the idea that you were born for something segues to realizing that you must now pursue the something. And then if you're able to pursue the something, you, you're obliged to make a kind of work out of that. I don't mean you know employment in the narrow sense of the term, but by all means that too. Wouldn't it be something if most of us were ploy, employed <clears throat> in the context of our spirit's work instead of, as I said earlier, working on the spirit? But the second half of your life is given over to a far different task. And I'll mention this and then I'll talk about the plague for a second after that. And the task of the second half of your life seems to me to be something like this. Regardless of whether you came around to your first task, regardless of how effective you were in pursuing it, whether or not you were able to get close, you know, by default or by design, the second half of your life is given over to undertaking the purpose of your life's work and so on in the presence of others, which is to say, now it's a question of how the world benefits from your sojourn into this self-discovery, not what a better self you can be. And it's, it's really the second half of your life seems to me needs to be engaged in an eclipse of the self, not an annihilation. It's way too violent. Just to simply the idea that the old order understanding of the, the kind of ego limits and the, the, the various um, assertions of independence and so on, all of these things, perhaps at a kind of nominal use at an earlier time in your fracas, but, um, but the times ask something of you that you would never ask of yourself. And this I learned from the death trade. Hmm. So that the, um, the devotion that you're kind enough to ascribe to me, uh, to, to pass my, 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 my willingness to persist through the, the template, the filter uh, across the litmus paper of what are the times, what are the times I was born to? I mean, I can't think of anything else to do. That seems to me, that's it in a nutshell. At least that's what I figured out so far, right? So um, we had talked earlier uh, in, in before we went on the air here about a, a piece from the book that might actually speak to what you've asked me about here now. Yeah. So at the risk of self-aggrandizement, I'm going to read a little something from the book. If anybody's looking for it later, it's on page 20 in the first section uh, about uh, Die Wise. And this is what it says. Is coming to our senses what we want to do? Is being practitioners of radical citizenship with the burden of village-mindedness what we want? It doesn't look like it. It looks like we want vindication and some breathing room, there's the phrase again for you, and a break from the litany of trespass that we have put into motion. It looks like we want the cortical truth of the plague at hand as information, and we want it to come close enough that we can talk intelligently about it and make our personalized vaccine decisions. But it doesn't look like we want it to come close enough to change us. How else to explain the hearkening to the time when all of this is over? 
What if that time is over? And what if things have changed for keeps and we've missed it? What if the plague has come close enough to change things, but not close enough to change us? Are you relieved by the thought? Stymied by it? Can a near miss stay with you as an odds-defying kind of pardon? Can you come within a blade's width of a mortal wound and have that memory stay with you as a precious souvenir, a cultivated and sought-after memory? Or is its only staying power its traumatizing effect, an unsought, unwelcome, odious, and enervating memory? I was, I'm not going to mention any names, but I'm aware of an enormous, um, uh, what would we call it? I guess, uh, podcasting, uh, enormously successful. I mean, their, their reaches in the many, many, many tens of thousands signed up for this thing. And, and the principal operating ingredient that drew the whole thing, the, the magnetic force field of the thing was trauma. Trauma is enormously a big seller now. That's, to my mind, that's a fascinating thing. As a sort of, as a student of the culture, I'm, I'm, I'm not mystified by it, but I'm. I guess I'm ultimately dismayed by it. That we would be way more compelled to join in at some considerable expense. I would say to a, to a kind of pantheon of worthies telling us about how legitimizing our traumas are as a prelude to what? I mean, at what point do your traumas cease to be um, legitimizing for you? That you've spent this much time coming to understand them in order to do what with them? In order to finally be on the other side of them where they have no further gravitational pull, no further demonstrable determining consequence on your life? And if that's true, what shall replace them as your God, I wonder? And so I, I wrote that piece there and, and put my, gave myself the task of trying to wonder aloud or in print um, whether or not anything I'd done could simply be useful, not important, you know, not, not elbowing other people out of the way. Just is there something in there that has utility? And it is somehow at hand. It doesn't require immense amounts of um, time away from the fray. And, and, th and that's my sort of greatest commitment, I suppose, is to, su to suggest over and over in a hundred different ways that removal from, from the, the three-ring circus of the way it is does not really seem to produce clarity that's useful in the circus. It's useful in the audience, but it seems to be genuinely of limited use if you're in the circus, if you're in the maelstrom, if you're in the fray. I'm reminded of a, a poem by a Spanish poet named Antonio Machado, who was saying something like this, it seems to me now. The, the poet, as I remember, the poem goes like this. Mankind owns four things that are useless at sea. Sails rudder, oars, and the fear of going down. Now, 
most people would say, no, all those are enormously useful. Yes, to a traumatized person, fear is useful. But what if you, what if your the what if trauma is no longer part of your identity? What if the notion of your identity itself is an oversold proposition? What if the 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 extraordinary addiction we have to personalizing everything and to understanding ourselves as a discrete autonomous being? What if that's the precondition for trauma instead of the solution to it or the bulwark against it. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff I wonder about pretty routinely. Yeah. I, I, I want to share something with you, which is really a, a deep kind of thank you. Um, when I came across that passage, you know, when we talked, I guess it was January, right before this all happened, um, I had shared with you you know, that I've had, I've had cancer three times and six surgeries. Um, and it was really your book, Diawise, that, that gave me a language and a lucidity that I could work with to understand it and, and to try to come to a vision of, of life as big as one that doesn't include death phobia, but embraces death, death as a part of life, that as one that doesn't include fear of illness, but embraces that as part of life. Um, and, and came across this distinction in, in this latest book between trauma and, and this different way of thinking. So, you know, you describe it as what if it's not trauma, but the souvenir that moves you forward? What if it's not trauma, but this precious memory? What if it's not trauma, but it's this ritual scar that reminds you? And I can remember for, for so many years, sort of feeling like I'd hit this, this clarity mm. and thinking, I don't want to go back to not having cancer. But of course, that just fits immediately into the culture's trauma narrative. Yeah. And, and I kept instead going back to the story you told about your your kind of unofficial mentor brother blue responding to a movie and saying my heart is broken and i never want it to heal what a prayer that is yeah yeah, yeah. um and so i think just this this distinction this this way of seeing that what the culture might want you to embrace as trauma might take you somewhere if you can envision it differently toward a clearer perhaps fiercer if darker and harder life is really a gift thank you oh you're very welcome man it's very kindly said and if i part played any small part in your description there it's it's uh, barely deserved and perhaps not uh, not earned but well i'm not done yet so uh, i'll see if i can still pass through the eye of the needle of being useful to somebody who's had cancer three times well so when you're on the other you know I think so much of your your work is does this kind of really heavy duty ground clearing um, of trying to to kind of like rake through the bullshit and just expose what's there. And I mean, you know, in Die Wise, you're re you're you're wandering us into a new relationship to place that was always right in front of us in the dirt under our feet and in coming mm-hmm. come of age. You know, you're taking us back in time to a kind of ancestral and pre-Roman way of thinking about 
what it might mean to be and live. Um, and sometimes I think I ask myself, like, what what is it like for S- Stephen, right, on the other side of the ground clearing? Um, you know, it seems like the the way you figured out how to handle the grace time is this fury of Protestant production, um, <laughs> you know. But I, I, I sometimes find myself, you know, living in a culture that's death phobic and illness phobic and is flipping mm-hmm. out right now about the fact that there's this pandemic or completely denying it. Um, you know, sometimes it feels like a, a lonely place to be um, on the dark road. Yeah. That's not a feeling. That's a fact. Yeah. You know, but, but solitude in these matters is a kind of um, unintentional byproduct of the labor, you know, it may have sounded earlier on like I was entirely hostile to the notion of solitude or, or uh, privacy. Or, no, those things are as important to me as anything. I'm just saying that the utility of the work that you undergo in private is not measured by how valuable or how wonderful you feel at the end of your work. <laughs> That's the point, right? Yeah. So it's something like awake the wake that ensues as a result of your life coming to its conclusion. Now, you know, you could be one of the yuppies of today, one of the boomers of today, and insist that you're not, you're not, in, you're not planning to miss your wake. You're actually going to be there. You're just going to convene the party ahead of your demise. What's, called, what's that called? Well, it's not a wake if you're there, is it? Of course it isn't. It's just another friggin' party. You know, and it's the boomers getting their way one more time while they still can. It's just astounding to me that when are you going to learn that submission is one of the things, one of the radical acts of citizenship you have yet to perform? So you have to submit to the end of your life, no? To give everybody a chance to do what? Well, convene and drink too much, yes. What else? Uh, To begin to talk about you. And what happens when they do? doesn't matter if they're telling the truth, the whole truth, or any part of the truth. What matters is, as they begin to talk about you, they begin to crystallize before them the consequences of your presence in their lives. And the work of translation begins, you see? And as a consequence of the work of translation, your, your life and all its enterprises finally begins to acquire something like a meaning. And you don't get to know what it is because your death was the prerequisite for that happening. Just get it straight. You want your life to mean something? I do. Okay, well, just wait till it's over and then you won't hear any more about it. And then you'll some part of you is going to have to go on a little bit of autopilot and in hopes that uh, somebody answers the bell or enters the fray and decides that they're going to wade into the middle of your authorized version of your story to add to it or to denounce part of it. And so, and so it goes, no? And this is why the, the notion is here that I'm not talking about whether your life was true or not. That's a whole other discussion. But the meaning lives there regardless of whether you agree with it or not. Well, that's, you're not talking about the guy I knew. Okay, well, you talk. Okay, and you contribute the guy that nobody else knew, apparently, only to discover you're a little overstated about the fact 
that you know you have access to this guy who's died that nobody else did. That's very unlikely. So now you take a second seat to you know the authoritative version that you were nursing about this dead person. And before you know it, well, you become a kind of doubting Thomas. And isn't that a proper thing? The doubting Thomas was the only, I mean, it's a little extreme example perhaps, but doubting Thomas was the only apostle who wasn't willing to go on faith. And he's got a bad rap for it ever since. But it seems to me that he was the only guy who was willing to learn the end of what he claimed to hold dear. Hmm. And that was the beginning of him holding it dear for real. Right. That guy was more valuable, if I may put it this way, than all the other disciples combined because he put his fingers in the wound and the wound effectively was the annihilation of what of the dream he had for a better day and his willingness to put his fingers in the wound is what prompted his dreaming for a better day to outgrow its attachment to the guy who was killed. Hmm. What an amazing story. Yeah. And I didn't make it up. It's there to be read if you're so inclined. Listen, apropos of, I know we don't have but a couple of minutes left here, but I did promise you that uh, off camera, so to speak, that maybe I'd read one, one more thing. And I'd appreciate it if you do. I had my fingers on page uh, 92, and lo and behold, you know, this is what we ended up talking, well, I ended up talking about with your uh, direction. And it's a little entry that's called Blood. And it's a, from a meditation on matrimony. And it goes like this. Now, friends, blessing is not tidings of joy. Bless comes from the old English word for blood. They knew in those days that if you were to bear down upon a person or an event with blessing, there was some bloodying to be done, bloodying to be had. The blessed, well, they are the ones who survived the onset of the blessing because there are casualties to blessing. Things will not be as they were if you petition for blessing or if you bestow it. Not everything lasts when blessing comes around. It's the change, the end. It's the bloodying that lends blessing its charge and its consequence. Among those who understand, blessing is a weighty thing. It isn't approval. It's something else. That's why the blessing of the elder and of the aged can be so potent. It comes from those with more endings in tow, more gore on the transom. To bless a human union, you daub it with life, the part of life that ends. It's the blood of the end of every other could have been or would have been or should have been that now won't be and probably will never be. It isn't cleansing. It isn't purifying. It's staining, reminding, making sure that the heavy draw that matrimony makes upon the world is not lost on the merrymakers and the witnesses and the marzipan models atop the cake. It marks the young especially with irreversible consequence. Well, there's more, but that's me saying in a nutshell, blessing is a wonderful thing, but let's not mistake it for um, just benign good feelings of approval and assent. Blessing is, it's telling you if the etymology is 
to bloody. It's telling you it comes from the days of animal and probably of human sacrifice. And the understanding here is if you mean it, if you mean that you're seeking a blessing for this enterprise, for this time that you're in, for for whatever you've managed by way of, of wisdom and so on, then many things have to end for the blessing to come down and to be bestowed. And it's a beautiful memory. It's a jarring memory too. I grant you, of course it is. But maybe we've undertaken some kind of work like blessing in this hour that we've been talking, you know. The, the idea that maybe there was not a lot of barely examined assumptions about the plague and about my rights and about whether I should get vaccinated or not and about, you know, who nobody gets to tell me what to do and all of that stuff. That upon examination, these things don't seem to be rights nearly as much as they seem to be unacknowledged, somewhat cowardly prejudices instead. And let's imagine this in some kind of conclusion that that for those of us who are born into a circumstance of what's called today privilege, we might feel paralyzed about how to, quote, undo it. And the answer, my answer is, you can't undo it, okay? This is an insult to everything <laughs> that's naturally occurring. Um, you, were, you were born into your privilege as an, uh, in the bullshit luck of birth, baby. That's all it is. It doesn't reflect too particularly nobly upon you personally, okay? But here's what you can do if you're so inclined. Rather than swear off the stuff, try to give it all away, try to get out from under it, try not to be that, try to over-identify with people who are not privileged in order to drag you across the line of legitimacy and all the rest. How about this? You did nothing to earn the privilege that you were born to, nor did I. But we can retroactively labor upon earning the privilege that we have been entrusted with this time around. You could say in one way or another that me writing a generation's worth was an attempt on my part to see whether or not the privilege of not having to live with nine other people in this two-bedroom place uh, and not exposing myself to the slings and arrows of the plague unnecessary, or no, how should I say, unavoidably, uh, whether or not that asks something of me instead of simply spares me. And I translated as it asks something of me. And what you've been listening to is my attempt to translate the demands of my time and seeing whether or not I can approach the throne of wisdom by example, by some kind of access to whatever wisdom preceded me that was made available, certainly through Brother Blue and and, and through people I, I don't know who were available to me through him. And so it goes. Stephen, I want to say, um, you know, I've, I've heard you say this a few times um, in interviews that you've done, but I wanted to talk to you today as though this is going to be our last shot at it. Yeah. And I want to say that I feel blessed by your work in the way that you just read it. Uh -huh. And I'm in your wake, and I'm grateful. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, you're welcome to. Thank you. This is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview 
with Stephen Jenkinson, author of A Generation's Worth, Spirit Work While the Crisis Reigns, here on the New Books Network.